Okay, welcome back to another episode of The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 10th, 2021, which means that by the time you're listening to this, it should be July 11th, 2021, which means that it is going to be the 26th anniversary of the massacre at Srebrenica, Bosnia, way back in July of 1995. And it's curious that it just happened to be in the news last month, not for the uh, anniversary, but a month before the anniversary, uh, when um, the former Bosnian Serb military commander, Ratko Mladic, lost his appeal of his um, genocide conviction before the war crimes tribunal at The Hague in relation to the Srebrenica massacre. Two, of course, the requisite um, cries of outrage from Russia. The International Commission on Missing Persons, which was established by the United Nations after the massacre, has now identified 7,000 sets of remains out of the presumed 8,000 victims. I hope that uh, most listeners are familiar with this episode. But it's been so long ago now that I have to make sure the town of Srebrenica, mostly inhabited by Muslims, had been besieged for going on three years by Serb rebel forces in Bosnia-Herzegovina. It had become a so-called safe haven guarded by Dutch UN peacekeepers who finally failed to prevent the town from being overrun by rebel Bosnian Serb forces, the town was cleared out. The women and children and the elderly were put on buses and sent to Bosnian government-held territory. The fighting-age men were separated. Their whereabouts became the matter of an international investigation, which has since borne grisly fruit, and the numerous mass graves around Srebrenica have been exhumed, and a memorial has been established where they have now been reburied, a memorial to what is recognized by all competent authorities as an act of genocide. And I've been uh, ranting recently on my podcast about um, this extremely disturbing phenomenon of pseudo-left accommodation or even support for war criminals when they appear to be enemies of the United States and the West. And I've mostly been ranting about this in the contemporary context of Syria. But really, the first time that I witnessed it, the first time that that this phenomenon occurred in my adult life, was 30 years ago. Hard to believe how long it's been, but beginning 30 years ago in Bosnia and the former Yugoslavia. So I'm going to be doing a little reading tonight from a new book, relatively new. It came out in um, 2019, published by Vanderbilt University Press, entitled... Surviving the Peace, the Struggle for Post-War Recovery in Bosnia-Herzegovina, by Peter Lippmann, who was a journalist and human rights activist who began covering Yugoslavia back when it was still Yugoslavia, back in the 1980s, and continued to do so, spending a lot of time on the ground, particularly in Bosnia, after the war. And while, of course, you know, there was a whole slew of books about Bosnia, when the war was going on, it was largely forgotten after the war ended. So Peter Lippmann has written a uh, sort of a sequel, What's Been Going On in Bosnia Since the War, 
with chapters on return of the displaced, war crimes trials and accountability for rights abuses, finding and identifying the remains of the missing, economic rebuilding, etc. But I'm going to be doing some readings from his final chapter entitled Atrocity Revisionism, in which he deftly deconstructs a lot of the really sinister propaganda which has issued forth from so-called progressive sources in the West about the war and genocide in Bosnia, and calls out some of the same (coughs) figures and analyzes some of the same articles that I, in fact, did at the time on my website, Counter Vortex. So I'm really glad to see that this critique is now being committed to a bound volume by someone who has far greater creds than I do to write on the matter of Bosnia, because he spent a lot of time on the ground there. Okay, before I uh, delve into the reading, I'm going to give a very uh, quick Reader's Digest version of what the war was all about, for those of you who um, weren't paying attention or are too young to remember or uh, whatnot. Now, a lot of vital context is going to be missing here. Like I say, it's a quick Reader's Digest version, just so that, uh, you know, those who are not up to speed on the Bosnia conflict will have some context to comprehend what I'm going to read. But Bosnia was uh, the most multi-ethnic of the six of the um, constituent republics of Yugoslavia, made up of uh, Muslims as well as ethnic Serbs and Croats, all united by the Serbo-Croatian language, despite the extreme bitterness between these groups, which would um, shortly emerge. It was in the uh, the late 1980s that um, Slobodan Milosevic, shortly to become the president of Serbia, then one of the six constituent republics of Yugoslavia, broke the taboo on ethnic nationalism that had been in place under the long rule of the fairly enlightened communist dictator, Marshal Tito, who died in 1980. So Milosevic came to power as president of Serbia on a wave of Serb ethno-nationalism, particularly demonizing the Muslim Albanian people of Serbia as a demographic threat and an economic drain, the usual racist terms that we've all become so familiar with in this country under Donald Trump in the past four years. <clears throat> and then leaders in the other republics either uh, began to emulate Milosevic and similarly embracing their own ethno-nationalism, or just decided that, you know, they didn't want to stick around in a, uh, in a Yugoslavia, which was dominated by Milosevic's Serbia, Serbia being the most powerful of the six constituent republics, or gradations of these um, two tendencies, shall we say. In any event, in uh, 1991, Slovenia became the first to secede, precipitating a brief 10-day war. Slovenia was uh, the real success story. War only lasted 10 days, and uh, a reasonable degree of um, stability and democracy was achieved. Next to secede, also in 91, was Croatia, where there was a much longer and bloodier conflict, because Croatia had a significant Serb minority, and ugly ethno-nationalism took hold on both sides of the Serb-Croat ethnic divide. And, you know, I'm, I'm flashing back to that time right now where, uh, you know, I uh, knew very little about 
Yugoslavia at this point, and I was just watching in horror as, uh, you know, the cities of um, Vukovar and Dubrovnik were virtually destroyed by Serb and uh, Serb rebel and um, <clears throat> Yugoslav National Army artillery. And saying to myself at the time, way back in the day, that, uh, wow, you know, uh, a city has just been destroyed in Europe again for the first time since World War II, and maybe I should try to get up to speed on what the hell is going on there. And that's when I dove in and uh, started doing a lot of historical readings about uh, former Yugoslavia. Well, then it was still Yugoslavia, or in the process of becoming former Yugoslavia. Got to know people from the region and ultimately got involved in solidarity work for um, anti-war and pro-coexistence activists from all of the former Yugoslav republics. But in any event, the, the worst was yet to come. Even as I was you know, horrified by what was happening in, in Croatia, the worst was yet to come. In 1992, Bosnia seceded. And as in Croatia, the, uh, the Serbs in Bosnia in turn broke away from Bosnia and refused to recognize the, uh, the independent Bosnian government. With massive military support from uh, across the border in Serbia to the north and the east, they seized the majority of Bosnia's territory until the actual government forces were besieged in their own capital, Sarajevo, which was uh, for years fired upon with rockets from the surrounding hills, snipers firing into the city intermittently, a couple of really horrific instances where missiles fell into marketplaces, and in the territory actually under control of the Bosnian Serb rebels, there uh, was the notorious so-called ethnic cleansing of Muslims. It's where the term actually originated in that conflict, ethnic cleansing. Concentration camps were established, kind of makeshift concentration camps and abandoned factories and whatnot, most notoriously at Omarska and Ternopolye, both in the Preador region. Horrific stories emerged about what was happening in these camps, starvation, mass rape, and then there were, of course, the massacres, the largest of which by far was on July 11th, 1995, with the fall of Srebrenica. All right, now I should say that the, uh, the Bosnian government had a strong support base among the country's Muslims, and its president, Aliyah Izetbegovic, was a Muslim, but it officially rejected ethnic nationalism and was at least officially committed to a multicultural Bosnia, although inevitably as the war war on over the years. Their initial idealism, of course, eroded, which was inevitable, and a certain degree of ethnic nationalism and corruption began to emerge within their ranks as well. They were um, sort of forced into um, an uneasy alliance with the Bosnian Croat forces against their uh, mutual enemy, the Serb rebels, even though the Bosnian Croat forces did embrace ethnic nationalism. Finally, after the Srebrenica massacre in 1995, NATO and Russia jointly intervened in an effort to end the war, with the U.S. and NATO perceived as the uh, you know, protector of Bosnian government and Croat forces, and Russia that of the Bosnian Serbs, the perceived protector of the Bosnian Serbs. At the peace deal, which was actually brokered at an Air Force base in Dayton, Ohio, the so-called Dayton Accords, Milosevic, who was not even a Bosnian, he was the president of Serbia, uh, served as the, uh, the representative of the Bosnian Serb forces, 
So very ironic that the, you know, the mastermind of genocide and the guy who had really unleashed the nightmare in the first place was embraced as a peacemaker. I'll just jump ahead of myself a little bit and note that ultimately, uh, years later, he was overthrown in a popular revolution in Serbia and uh, was turned over to The Hague to face uh, war crimes charges, and he died in a prison cell in The Hague in 2006. But under the, uh, the Dayton Accords, Bosnia was divided, and it remains divided today. The, you know, the Bosnian government is something of a fiction. Bosnia is really two entities. It's the Serb Republic, or Republika Srpska, and the uh, Croat-Bosnian Federation, the Bosnian Serb Republic having its capital at Banja Luka, and the Croat-Bosnian Federation having its government at Sarajevo, which is the official capital. But the Bosnian Serb Republic has such a high degree of autonomy that effectively they are two different entities. Before I jump into the reading from uh, Peter Lipman's book, uh, just one last thing to, to clarify, just to make it all confusing. Bosnia, as we all know, is a country that actually has two names. It's Bosnia and Herzegovina, or Bosnia-Herzegovina. Yet those two, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, do not conform to the two actual different um, entities which make up the country, <laughs> the Serb Republic and the Croat-Bosnian Federation, just to make it more confusing. Herzegovina is actually the um, Croat-majority region of Bosnia along the Croatian border in the southwest, which is now ruled by the Croat-Bosnian Federation with its capital, Sarajevo, whereas the Serb Republic is its own distinct entity up at the other end of the country, mostly. It's kind of a raggedy border, but mostly up at the other end of the country in the northeast, adjacent to Serbia. So, just to clear that up, okay, now I am going to uh, do a little reading, which is going to piss a lot of you off, because that's what I like to do <clears throat> here on the Counter Vortex. Piss people off who need to be pissed off. And some of you really need to be pissed off. Some of you who have been, uh, you know, uncritically accepting any uh, thing that comes from the lips of Noam Chomsky as pearls of wisdom, you guys need to be pissed off. And I'm going to piss you off by reading a little bit from the book Surviving the Peace. The Struggle for Post-War Recovery in Bosnia-Herzegovina by Peter Lippmann. It's divided into um, five parts. The last one is Atrocity Revisionism, which consists of one chapter, chapter 18, Denial of War Crimes at Srebrenica and Preador. The struggle against historical revisionism is a critical element of the ongoing campaign for truth and justice in Srebrenica, in Preador, and throughout Bosnia-Herzegovina. There is a widespread group of academics and other commentators who deny, in varying measure, that extreme nationalists committed aggression against the state of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that in the course of that aggression, they committed war crimes, expulsion, and genocide. This group includes self-identified leftists who, for various reasons, openly or inadvertently, ally themselves with criminal regimes in what they imagine is an expression of anti-imperialism. Countless lies are the standard necessary fare of the perpetrators of war crimes and their political heirs who are in power today 
Among these are assertions to the effect that the Srebrenica genocide never happened, that the market bombings in Sarajevo were perpetrated by government forces against their own citizens to garner sympathy or prompt intervention, and that Ternopolier was, as typically worded, quote, a collection center set up for the safety of its inhabitants, end quote. In the West and elsewhere, there is a circle of reactionary politicians and conservative ideologues, including Islamophobic commentators, who continue to deny the war crimes. For those of us concerned with human rights and the long-term struggle for justice, more disturbing are the members of the left who participate in the denial. It is shocking to witness people who have been members of the worldwide movement for peace and justice grossly misreading the breakup of Yugoslavia and the Bosnian War. While it is confounding to encounter atrocity revisionism on the part of progressive thinkers, it is possible to sort out several factors that contribute to their error. One is certainly the complicated history of Yugoslavia and its breakdown. A member of the non-aligned movement, Yugoslavia was part of neither the Warsaw Pact nor NATO. Its turbulent history tended to escape the attention of people focusing on Vietnam, then Central America, and other more prominent hotspots around the world. Most Western progressives paid little attention to Yugoslavia as Tito died, economic crises struck, nationalism rose, and the country began to fall apart. Then, when the bloodshed began, it was all but too late to understand the situation without serious study. Quick primers that were produced at the time were insufficient and misleading. In this vein, Western commentators prone to simplistic analysis repeated talk show analyses along the lines of, it's an ancient ethnic problem and there's nothing we can do about it, which absolved them of the responsibility to understand the situation further. Another popular and shallow explanation was that after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the West was eager to destabilize, quote, the last socialist country in Europe, unquote. Purveyors of this analysis ignored the fact that the destabilization of Yugoslavia was at heart a domestic phenomenon, and that it began well before 1989. As mainstream politicians, at least rhetorically, opposed Milosevic's aggressive policies toward Bosnia-Herzegovina in the early 1990s, some leftist commentators succumbed to another dangerous fallacy. They concluded, in effect, that they must necessarily defend Milosevic, since he was a target of the U.S. administration. There are, of course, gradations on this theme, since it is not so easy to take the side of Milosevic, but many left pundits, in the habit of opposing all U.S. policy regardless, found it impossible to hold two opposing thoughts simultaneously. It was apparently too complicated to understand that while the United States, as the lone superpower of the era, pursued a drive for increased influence around the world, there could at the same time be other actors who aspired to regional hegemony and whose policies were odious. Of course, there are reasons to oppose a broad range of U.S. policies in the post-Cold War period, but on the question of the Bosnian War, members of the left punditocracy tended to inform themselves inadequately, to participate in groupthink, to quote and cite each other exclusively in their statements and writings, 
and to maintain an unfortunate distance from the reality of the atrocities. Well-intentioned progressive people are sometimes confused when they hear that respected commentators such as Noam Chomsky or Michael Moore have expressed a mistaken position on the breakdown of Yugoslavia or the war in Bosnia. These are just a couple of examples from a longer list, but it is all the more unsettling because these two figures have done admirable work in the interest of justice over the years. It is disconcerting to observe that people with an anti-fascist background who have consistently worked for justice have fallen in with those whose policies have led to a devastated country dotted with mass graves. Progressive thinkers who are familiar with the regional dynamics in the Western Balkans differ with the left revisionists in our understanding of the causes of the dissolution of Yugoslavia. And some champions of human rights in the region have been swayed to accept the characterization of humanitarian intervention to refer to the United States and NATO's involvement in bringing the Bosnia War to an end. While the right and wrong of that intervention need not be sorted out here, it should be clear that morality is not a factor that influences the politics of a superpower. The deniers know this. We must not forget it. Finally, the denial and distortion of the atrocities in Srebrenica and elsewhere is the utmost insult to the victims and the survivors of those crimes. Denial is of a piece with the vast crime of genocide, and it does no service to justice. All right, then he breaks down uh, a few examples, beginning with the uh, report from the Bosnian Serb Republic itself, which attempted to, of course, you know, absolve its own forces of genocide. And then he moves on to uh, various figures on the <clears throat> left, quote unquote, in the West. I'm just going to jump forward to uh, two of them, two figures who were very well known, one still alive, the other not, <clears throat> who were um, collaborators on several books. I'm going to begin with the first, Edward Herman. Edward Herman was a retired professor of finance and media analyst. Before his death in 2017, he distinguished himself in the progressive community by collaborating with Noam Chomsky. Over a period of a couple of decades from the late 1960s on, Chomsky and Herman co-authored several books, most prominently the 1988 volume Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of Mass Media. Herman's association with Chomsky, though later terminated, afforded him familiarity in progressive circles. Edward Herman spent many years writing books and articles about the breakdown of Yugoslavia in a rather casual style. His analysis resembled that found in the discredited 2002 Republika Srpska report on Srebrenica. In 2007, the old left magazine Monthly Review shamed itself by devoting an entire issue to a 45-page plus footnotes article by Edward Herman and colleague David Peterson, titled The Dismantling of Yugoslavia. In the section titled The UN ICTY, International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, and the Srebrenica Massacre, end quote, the authors repeated their questioning of the numbers of the massacre and their anachronistic statement that in 
2001, quote, Srebrenica-related gravesites had produced 2,028 sets of individual remains, unquote, a figure that was significantly out of date by the time of the article in 2007, that is to say, six years later. In 2010, Herman and Peterson released their book, The Politics of Genocide. The volume was given a forward by Noam Chomsky and endorsed favorably by John Pilger, Norman Solomon, David Barsamian, and others. In the book, the authors present many of the disingenuous assertions about the Srebrenica massacre repeated by other revisionists. They particularly distort the definition of genocide beyond recognition, ignoring the UN Genocide Convention and insisting that the Nazi Holocaust is the only possible standard for such a definition. One can justifiably ask why so many progressive analysts, some of whom have made indisputably valuable contributions to knowledge and understanding of human rights issues, could venture to damage their reputations by falling in with Edward Herman. One possible reason is that some of the reviewers did not read the book or read it too quickly. Another is that some commentators, in any case not so well informed about the issue, are more concerned about their position in the network of pundits than they are with the truth, and they are too comfortable in that club. And a third is that some analysts are so blinded by their anger at American policies that they have become incapable of recognizing that an opposing side in conflict with the West can also be wrong. Noam Chomsky. In 2004, the writer M. Junaid Alam interviewed Noam Chomsky for the website Left Hook. The interview was published under the title Civilization versus Barbarism? During the interview, Chomsky provides a wide-ranging overview of war crimes, atrocities, and terrorist attacks comparing various events that took place in Iraq, Chile, Nicaragua, Burundi, Germany, and Chechnya, among others. In his presentation, Chomsky illustrates the scale of crimes perpetrated or supported by the United States as compared with those that come under the rubric of Islamic terrorism, quote-unquote, and shows the latter to be significantly smaller in scale. I do not argue with this overall presentation. However, while mentioning the massacre at Fallujah, Iraq, which took place in the same year as this interview, Chomsky compares the event with the Srebrenica massacre. He comments that the military onslaught against Fallujah was, quote, very much like Srebrenica, which is universally condemned as genocide. Srebrenica was an enclave lightly protected by UN forces, which was being used as a base for attacking nearby Serb villages it was known that there's going to be retaliation. When there was retaliation, it was vicious. They trucked out all the women and children, they kept the men inside, and apparently slaughtered them. The estimates are thousands of people slaughtered, end quote. It is more than implicit in the wording of this statement that the Muslim population of the enclave was the aggressor in the conflict, practically inviting revenge. What is omitted is the entire background of the siege of Srebrenica and the development of the enclave. It would not have been necessary for Chomsky to stray far afield from the topic of the interview in order to make it clear that the inhabitants of Srebrenica enclave were surrounded, besieged, starved, and shelled for several years. 
Instead, the impression an uninformed reader gets is that those inhabitants were aggressors and the provocateurs of their own massacre. In mid-2011, the British activist and author George Monbiot took Noam Chomsky to task for having written the foreword to Edward Herman and David Peterson's book, The Politics of Genocide. In a letter, he asked simply whether Chomsky had read the book and whether he considered his foreword an implicit endorsement of the book. He also asked whether Chomsky considered the book's description of the events at Srebrenica to be accurate. Writing a foreword to a book seems so obviously an endorsement of the same that, for my part, I would not have bothered to inquire of Chomsky about it. But the response from Chomsky, reproduced on Mambiat's website, is rather surprising. First, he denies that the word genocide applies in the case of Srebrenica. Then, he characteristically goes on the counterattack by changing the subject and bringing up the denial of genocide in the United States, as if this denial cancels out that of Herman and Peterson. Subsequently, he openly rejects the idea that there is any implicit endorsement of a book involved in having written its forward. On one hand, Chomsky praises the atrocity revisionists who have written a book of denial, which he refers to as a, quote, powerful inquiry, end quote. On the other hand, he denies having done so. In his final letter to Monbiot, Chomsky first trivializes the question of how many people the Serb forces killed the Srebrenica, and then states that it is not known and can probably never be known. This after numerous witnesses testified at war crimes trials, after dozens of mass graves were uncovered, and after thousands of victims were identified and reburied. The facts about the Srebrenica massacre are, to use one of Chomsky's stock phrases, a matter of public record. The fact that over several decades Chomsky has become established as a venerable authority in progressive, anti-war, and human rights circles makes the impact of his revisionism powerful. A couple of generations of activists have grown up revering Chomsky for his clear and accurate description of what he has called an intellectually totalitarian atmosphere in the West. No other figure on the left comes close to this man whom the New York Times described as, quote, arguably the most important intellectual alive, end quote. Most readers do not have the time to check the facts behind what they are used to receiving as Chomsky's wisdom. And there is an entire coterie of writers and thinkers rhetorically situated around Chomsky, buttressing his opinions. Some of these people do so intentionally because they agree with his positions. Others do it unwittingly because they are uninformed. Thus we are confronted with a serious absence of critical thinking in the presence of a revered analyst. Chomsky and the other revisionists described above are blinded by their anger at the United States as a perpetrator of large-scale military aggression. I share their revulsion, but the revisionists reflexively trivialize or deny the crimes of anyone who is an adversary of the United States. There is, in fact, no contradiction between criticizing U.S. war crimes and those of the smaller powers that the United States has targeted. Quite the contrary is true. What is at stake is moral consistency. It is a grave moral and intellectual failure on the part of Noam Chomsky and his admirers to miss this point. In the case of Srebrenica, ultimately, it is the survivors of the atrocity whose voices should be heard. 
and with whom human rights advocates should stand in solidarity. In this vein, in 2006, Hassan Nuhanovic, Srebrenica survivor and human rights activist, wrote an article entitled, Who is Noam Chomsky? Nuhanovic outlines Chomsky's biography and then mentions some of the history of distortion that I have described above. Nuhanovic then poses several questions about Chomsky, wondering whether Chomsky was really convinced that the things he said were true, or whether, alternatively, he had made mistakes and his ego would not allow him to admit it. Nuhanovic notes that he wrote Chomsky via email offering to provide him with information about the case of Srebrenica. Chomsky, quote, kindly responded, end quote, but did not wish to receive further information. Nuhanovic further wonders whether Chomsky was aware of how much damage he could create with his public statements. This point is critical to the discussion of revisionism. There are real people concerned, survivors who have lived through the atrocities and are seeking justice. For them, justice requires acknowledgement of the crimes that were committed, not denial and falsification of history. That falsification, first of all, works directly against the elucidation of the crimes, and for the victims, it adds insult to injury. And as Nuhanovic noted in his article, it gives the perpetrators cause for celebration. People who have fallen into the habit of admiring left pundits without question may not notice when they have begun to stand on the wrong side of justice where the history is complicated. It is normal to trust people we consider to be intelligent and informed and look to them for analysis and answers, since no one has the time to be well-informed on all issues. But there is no substitute for questioning, and it is dangerous to be lulled into this kind of trusting mode. We see that some prominent progressive analysts are essentially allying with the worst sort of human rights violators. When we discover this seemingly unlikely de facto alliance, we must expose it to an exacting public examination. This crucial work goes hand-in-hand with the entire struggle for truth and justice in the case of Srebrenica and Bosnia-Herzegovina in general. Here we see an added complication for progressive people who wish to understand and challenge the left deniers. For those deniers are right about one thing. Many of the revisionists within the progressive community correctly perceive that after the breakup of Yugoslavia, the economies of its former republics have become ripe for plunder by international corporations in collusion with domestic profiteers. This process of neoliberal expansion into the weak states of the former Yugoslavia and into their distressed economies is quite clear. We cannot deny that this process has taken place. The problem here is that an exercise in the logical fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc, the left deniers assert that this was the plan all along. Here, they are retrofitting present reality to fit into their simplified anti-imperialist template. And that, again, puts them in alliance with the perpetrators of war crimes and national expansionism, who dishonestly declare that their fight is against Western imperialism. Okay, that's all I'm going to read from uh, the book Surviving the Peace, The Struggle for Post-War Recovery in Bosnia-Herzegovina by Peter Lippmann, published in uh, 2019 
by Vanderbilt University Press in Nashville, Tennessee. I am very grateful to uh, Peter Lippman for um, having written <laughs> the, uh, well, the entire book, but particularly the passages that I just read. But the entire book is worthwhile. If people want to get a, um, a clearer understanding of the Bosnian conflict, and particularly its aftermath and the challenges of rebuilding a just peace, that is the book to read. And um, I don't know, it just gives me uh, such a great deal of angst and frustration that now it's, uh, you know, 30 years after the start of the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. And the same conversation that I was having, you know, back then with so-called progressives about Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic and Ratko Mladic are the same conversations I'm having today about Bashar Assad in Syria. And in fact, the situation has only gotten worse because, uh, you know, as I've ranted in previous podcasts, the pro-dictatorship and pro-genocide position, essentially the pro-fascist position in Syria, has become, you know, the de facto consensus position on the left to a far greater degree than was the case regarding the former Yugoslavia 30 years ago. But I'm going to continue to be a voice in the wilderness, dissenting from this sinister trajectory. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Please become a patron if you appreciate what we do around here. Join The Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.